It's both a blessing and a privilege to be able to pause midweek and to gather together to reflect, to praise the Lord, to worship together, and I'll also meditate on his word. And let's pray together. Father, it's, we count it a privilege, and we're thankful for the opportunity to gather together here this evening. Thankful, Lord, for the gift of praise, the gift of singing, the gift that you've given to us through these um, meaningful hymns that we could blend our voices this evening. And as we look into your word, we thank you for preserving it for us and for allowing us to read it and understand it. And we ask, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, that you would help us to understand the truths that we would meditate on. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For this evening's meditation, please turn with me to Titus, Titus, the second chapter. We'll begin our reading at verse 11. Titus, chapter 2, that's just after Timothy, and just before Hebrews and Philemon. Titus, the second chapter, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. I'd like to conclude here at the end of chapter 2. This was written to Titus, who was a faithful companion of the Apostle Paul. And eventually, uh, Titus, as we, re- we can learn in the first chapter, was sent to uh, Crete uh, to be among the Cretans there to establish the churches that had been planted there before. So evidently there were a number of churches there and he was to uh, ordain elders in every every one of the local churches there. And, and so in a sense he was the overseer of that, uh, if you think of it as a church plant or multiple church plants that have happened there. But it was not an easy assignment because the Cretans themselves were... Um, a unique culture. We read a little bit in the first chapter in the, in verse 12, it says, the Apostle Paul describing the culture that Titus found himself in. It says, of themselves, even a prophet of their own said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. And this is a description of, uh, Someone in the Cretan culture analyzing their own culture and giving these descriptive words that they're constantly lying. They're, they're like cruel animals. And we know what cruel animals do is they, they harm each other and do things that, uh, are, are selfish. And slow bellies, and another way of saying that is lazy gluttons. Those who are, don't want to do any work, but want to constantly indulge in their passions and in their senses, especially as it comes to food and drink. 
So this is the culture that the, the that Titus found himself in. And so we pick up here in our reading in verse 11 where it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, and even to the likes of the Cretans, those that would seem to be so far removed from God, and Gentiles, that the grace of God hath appeared even to that culture, as backward as it would be. Just because it's appeared to all men doesn't mean that all men are saved. The scripture makes that plain is to them in, in, in the gospel of John, it says to them gave he power for those that received him. It's not just the fact that, you know, he's appeared to all men, certainly the grace of God as we, as the scripture says, it's, it's, it's not God will that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. But it's to those that believe. But how would we know if God's grace is active in our lives? If we think of, um, someone who has never been redeemed, someone who has never named the name of Christ, that becomes a very obvious criteria. But the scripture gives a more stringent criteria than just naming the name of Christ as Lord and Savior. We see that in Jesus' own words in, in Matthew chapter 7, where, where he is speaking to the people in verse 21 in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So this aspect of, of following through with belief requires action. And in verse, in, in Titus, the second chapter, we read in, in verse 12 that gives us a better understanding of an aspect of the will of God that would be evident in the lives of those that are truly redeemed or have received salvation. It says that, Teaching us, that is, um, the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, or in other words to say it as sinful passions, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so it compares this notion of ungodliness, that is, living without any concept or recognition of God's authority, or God, the truths that God revealed to us. That's what an ungodly life looks like. No regard for that. Compared to a godly life is someone who incorporates the will of God, the truths that are in his word, in every facet of life. That's the contrast between ungodliness and godliness. And those that are ungodly will just live out their sinful passions. Whatever comes to mind, whatever feels good, whatever whatever they think is good, that's how they're going to live. Versus those that are godly, it says, should live soberly, that is, uh, recognizing that not, not to just give in to any passion, but putting them under control to live righteously and godly in this present world. In the, in the current world we live in, which is... Um, full of sin and full of darkness and full of difficulty, that that's the 
mark of someone who has the grace of God present and working in their life. And then in verse 13, he says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The scripture talks a lot about hope. It says here, the hope, looking for that blessed hope. That's a common theme in the scripture that... um, describes hope of waiting for something expectantly to occur in the future. Now, we often use hope in, a, in our everyday language far with far less certainty. And what I mean by that is uh, if someone is in, uh, would find themselves in a desert, for example, and would say something like, well, I hope it rains, there's very little chance of that rain. Very little chance that that's going to happen. Or if somebody says, I, um, as many people in this day and age, in this culture, would live and desire to become rich, and they would say, well, I hope I win the lottery. I mean, the chances of that happening are extremely slim. In fact, if you calculate it out, there's a far greater chance for you to be hit by lightning multiple times over than to actually um, uh, realize that hope. And so... The hope that the scripture is talking about here in this verse is not just this um, one in a million chance. It's a certainty. It's an expectation that this is going to happen. If we look at uh, the, the scriptures, it talks about this theme of hope. We see that in um, it really uh, separates it into three different categories. In Ephesians 2, we read of one sort of theme of hope, which which effectively is living a life without hope. And so, in Ephesians, uh, the second chapter, we have the Apostle Paul summarizing to the Ephesians, those at Ephesus, as he was describing their former state. He says that at the time you were without Christ, with being aliens or separated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, as in outsiders, not, not having any right or, or, or expectation that they would belong to the covenants of promise, those rich promises that are uh, throughout the entire scripture. It says that you were apart from those things and as a result of that having no hope and without God in the world. A person without hope is in a dark place. There's no, uh, the future looks gloomy. There's no purpose. There's no certainty. Often when someone feels in that, in that, um, with little or no hope, it's hard to get up in the morning because there's no purpose. There's no reason to keep going on. Uh, there's a lot of misery and, and life becomes burdensome if that carries on for a long time. And in many cases, uh, as, as we, as we see from, from, um, our culture, that young adults is the second cause of death among them is when they take their own life, where they feel there is no hope in continuing. The future looks hopeless. And it's a great and terrible tragedy to have to live 
like that. Recently, I read a true story of a uh, World War II account where there was a large ship that was traveling through through the waters on the Pacific, and unknown to them, there was a, a Japanese submarine that fired six torpedoes at that ship. And all six hit the ship, and within 12 minutes, the ship had sunk. And you can imagine, just to contrast that, the time, how fast 12 minutes is, the Titanic took two hours and 40 minutes to sink. And we know the great loss of life that occurred on there because that happened so fast. So you can imagine a ship, very large ship, sinking in just 12 minutes. There was no time to get any lifeboats out, anyone to get into lifeboats. It was basically um, abandoned ship as soon as and quickly as possible. And suddenly, hundreds found themselves in the shark-infested water in the middle of the night with no hope. Some had hoped that the signal had gone out, a distress signal, but as they found out, there was no time even to send a distress signal. So they were out in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Ocean in the shark-infested waters. And it became really apparent the distinction between those that had no hope versus those that had hope. Because those that had no hope quickly succumbed to the elements. And and they died. Those that had some hope of hoping for rescue as the day, the night turned into day, and then another night, and the days wore on as they were stuck with their life jackets, trying to survive without water, in, in surrounded by salt water, it became apparent for those that had hope of loved ones back home as they thought about families and, 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 and um, either children or parents or, or siblings or something to live for. And those that had faith in God that God was going to glorify himself in some way and that they would do their part and not give up. They were the ones that were able to survive because of that hope. That's why hope was so critical in times of great difficulty. And God knows that, which is why when the first sin was committed and the pronouncement of judgment was made, that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, God did not leave them without hope. Because with that sort of circumstance, without any hope, you could imagine if you were in their circumstance that you would want to give up. No reason to continue on. But God gave a promise that even though they had disobeyed him, there was hope. And he pointed towards the time of the Messiah, that Jesus would come and undo all of the evil that the enemy had been able to do. And this promise, and many other promises, these covenants of promises, were repeated and added to, an additional detail given to throughout the Old Testament so that those who believed in God and believed in his promises had hope 
that God was going to fix it in some way. And they put their faith and trust in him and could navigate the difficulties of life because of that hope. And of course, those of us that come after the time of the Messiah, we all look back to that time and see that the reason for going on is because of the hope that we have in the power of the death and resurrection and the payment that Jesus gave for our sins so that we could have this hope And it says in verse 14, then, he's talking about Jesus here, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. This is the hope that we've been uh, given or delivered from a, uh, a situation or scenario where we would otherwise have no hope or certainty. And so this is kind of one theme that the scripture talks about, that we're rescued, we're given the ability to be rescued from that state of having no hope. But the scripture also talks about a state of living in false hope. We, we briefly read, uh, read that in uh, Matthew, the seventh chapter, where the scripture says, uh, where Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now think about the false hope that these people that Jesus is talking about had. They felt that as a result of their good works that they've named here, that somehow they'll be able to earn their way into heaven. And so they have this false hope that their good works are better than their bad works or their non-works, and they'll be able to put them in the balance, and the balance will weigh in their favor. And imagine the devastation when they recognize that they had a false hope. But this false hope is um, evident or can be demonstrated in many different ways, even in our own life. Sometimes those that uh, are have not yet submitted to the grace of God, <clears throat> accepting the grace of God in their hearts, as they look at their own, um, faced with their own sinful lifestyle, have a false hope that at any time they can give it up. They have power over that, not recognizing that that is a false hope, that they do not have power, cannot have power over it, that it requires divine intervention. And when God extends that invitation or that open invitation we heard about this past weekend that in order that they need to accept that to experience the power of deliverance not only from that false hope but also from the sin that so easily besets them and or how about the false hope that we that our friends, the behavior of our friends, don't rub off on us. And especially as a number of um, young 
people are planning to go back to school here in, in a week and a half. There's a lot of influence that comes through your peers that you have to be aware of, that you have to be careful of. Because there could be a false hope that you think that you can hang out with any of them and you just won't be influenced by some of their bad behavior. When the scripture gives a very clear indication that bad manners corrupt good company. In other words, bad peer pressure, bad poor behavior will eventually rub off on us. We can't exempt ourselves from that. And so there, in a sense, there's a false hope that we can hang out with our friends and not be influenced in a negative way if they're doing things that are wrong. Or maybe there's a false hope about that we will never experience any health problems or that we won't experience just problems in general. When the scripture clearly indicates we will have many problems throughout this life. And we will not be delivered from them, but rather delivered through them. And one of the indications that we have perhaps been relying on a hope that is really false or faulty is when we become despondent or in despair when things don't turn out the way we'd expect. Now, of course, as we go through life, there are many times that things don't work out the way we would hope or the way we would want them to. And as a human being, we have feelings, we experience discouragement. But there's one thing to experience discouragement and be refreshed to realize that we have an eternal hope. And not have to stay stuck in that state of despondency. But if we struggle for a long time in that state of despair, it's probably an indication that we have placed our hope in the wrong thing. In the wrong in the wrong thing is probably the best way to describe that. And instead, as we read, as we've read together in Titus, we have to refocus our hope on the right foundation. In fact, in the, 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 the first chapter of Titus, we read in verse two, as, as the Apostle Paul is describing, uh, in his opening uh, statement to uh, Titus, he writes, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And so the hope that we are to place, that we are to place our hope in, is that of eternal life. Things of eternity. Because when we have that perspective, and when we have that um Understanding, we live it out that way, we will find that we will not need to give in to despair. We will not have to be faced with a false hope, but rather this third category of the true hope of being united with God one day in eternity 
for all eternity, past all of the cares and concerns and difficulties that we face from day to day, here in this life and the uncertainty around that. I think the psalmist uh, summarized this uh, really well. In Psalm 42, we can read, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Disquieted means, in other words, uh, 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 being sad or discouraged. Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. When we place our hope in that eternal fact, not just the blessing of our salvation, but hoping in God himself, that will provide the health necessary to our countenance to bring us out of a place of despair and deliver us from a place of either no hope or a place where we may find ourselves and uh, have b- believed in some set of false hopes that have let us down. And this is the approach that the psalmist describes and experienced, which is also true for us, that if we put this into practice, we too will find that our countenance will be healed and we will receive new strength and new vision, new hope, being grounded in the eternal truths here in God's word. This, then, as it goes on in in Titus, the second chapter, it says that, He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. It's not talking about peculiar here as being weird, um, but rather being different. And he clarifies how we are different. Zealous of good works. Doing good deeds. That's what makes, should define us to be a peculiar people. Be unusual. That means that we need to put away frivolous pursuits. Because all of us have a finite amount of time and energy and, and money. And those are The zealous of good works here requires both time, a commitment, a passion for that, a fervency associated with that, as well as how we spend our, how we spend our money, what our finances look like, and how we follow through with the command of the scripture to give a regular part of our income to the work of the kingdom. Establish those good works that perhaps we ourselves may not be able to carry out, but we can support others who are able to carry it out in a place that we may never visit or for people we may never meet ourselves personally. And it's interesting, as I often enjoy looking at different statistics and and trends, where the Barna Research Group, who does many different surveys across North America to better understand the trends that we're seeing in society, 
would say that those who identify as born-again believers, only 1% of them in the past year at the time of the survey had said they had not given any money to any charitable cause, compared with almost 30% of those that identified with some other faith or no faith at all that said they didn't do any sort of charitable activity. And so in a sense, that is what the scripture is talking about here. There should be a marked difference between that have either have no faith or not a faith in the living God that a survey like that should note a difference. And so if we were asked that question or if we filled out that survey, would we be able to mark down that we have been zealous of good works, not to be noticed, but because we have been redeemed and because we have that eternal hope that we desire to demonstrate God's love in so many different ways in the way that we spend our time or the way we use our money. To be deliberate in those things so that we can be that peculiar people zealous of good works. What's interesting is if you look at a number of the charitable institutions, many of them going back hundreds of years here in North America, were established by Christians who took this very seriously. Many of the hospitals and other organizations to alleviate poverty and, and, and to um, even education institutions, many were started because of the uh, desire to teach the truth in God's word and to live out this compassion to the fellow man. And even though some of those organizations may be secular today, if you look at their roots, many of them started out with a set of believers that felt passionate and carried out the commands that we read here. And, and it's wonderful that we have many different organizations to be able to volunteer our time with or to even here in our local fellowship to be able to volunteer our time to demonstrate and to bring about the grace of God, <clears throat> or to illuminate, maybe is a better way to say it, the grace of God that brings salvation. And we can do this, not because we're forced to do it, because when you, when we experience true hope, it gives us the energy and the passion to be able to carry out these things. They will not feel burdensome to us, but instead we will do it out of delight and out of desire to serve God. And so as we look at this scripture and consider the blessing of being delivered from a place of not having any hope, or being delivered from a place of potentially a whole set of false hopes. To be given a true hope that is eternal in nature. And cannot be taken away. That is for certain to be experienced. Because as the scripture said that God cannot lie. He's promised that before the world began. 
This allows us to look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Amen.